A few years ago, I witnessed firsthand what may go down as the greatest sports upset in the history of athletics. Now that's a pretty big tease, right? So I, I, was, a, I was a youth pastor and we were having a dodgeball tournament. All right, now stay with me. All right, so what we did is we took all of the students and we arranged them into teams and they were arranged kind of according to grades. So we had senior high teams and we had junior high teams and we had male teams and we had female teams. And what, I rem what they were supposed to do in these little teams is they were supposed to go out in the community and find their classmates and recruit them to be a part of a dodgeball team so they could come back and they were gonna have the tournament and then at the end of it, we were gonna preach the gospel to them, right? Well, I'll never forget when, when one of the teams begins to show up. Most of the teams are already there. And our, one of our senior high guy teams was kind of the last group to show up. And they got out and you would have thought the University of Alabama showed up at the church. They get out, I mean, off of the team bus, if you will, and they begin to walk toward the gym. And I, if I'm lying, I'm dying. I looked out and I saw physical specimens like I have never seen before in my life, okay? We're, we're, they, had they had players on their team, at least two of them, that were five-star athletes according to Rivals.com. That is not an exaggeration. They had guys on that team that today are playing in the NFL, okay? So they, they, they come rolling up and you can imagine the chest is poked out a little bit, right? I mean, you look around the rest of the teams and you see like the junior high girls team over there. They, they're excited about that they have a fast pitch softball player on there, you know. And you, you see the, the junior high guys team who are barely pubescent, you know, and they're just happy to be in the world. And then, then you see the athletes, the Heisman Trophy candidates show up. And man, they're throwing the ball. The tournament gets underway and, they're, they're th and you can't even see the ball going across the court. Like I almost disqualified them up front, no lie. I almost disqualified them up front because I thought they might hurt somebody. And they're, they're throwing these dodgeballs and it's just like watching a blur or a laser just shoot across the court. And man, they're just going through the competition. And the more they win, the cockier they get, right? And by the time we get to the championship round, they're dancing. I mean, they're shouting, they're doing trick shots. They're throwing behind their back, between their legs. They're doing all of these things. Well, in the championship round, they ended up matched against a group of junior high boys. And I'm watching this, y'all. And I'm thinking, this is going to be a bloodbath. You know, like, this is going to be a bloodbath. And there, and of course, both teams, I think, thought this is going to be a bloodbath. Well, they come out and those guys start throwing them. And the thing that they underestimated about these junior high boys is they're not, their muscles aren't fully developed yet, right? So like they could just collapse like a jellyfish straight down onto the ground. It was like they had no bone structure or something. And they could just lay completely flat, you know, no matter how, what was happening. And so what those junior high boys would do is one of, one of those guys would come and they would throw at them and they would just collapse. And then all the other boys would take and they would throw and hit the guy that had just, had just thrown and missed. And one by one, I mean, you can see they go, they stop dancing at first. They stopped talking trash. Now they're serious. We were just messing with y'all. Now they're serious. And then finally, they're down to the last, the last man on the ace squad. And there's like 10 junior high boys left on the other side. 
And y'all, if you could have been there, I'm going ballistic. I mean, I'm beside myself. And when he went down, it was the greatest moment in the history of my ministry. These guys had rippling muscles. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I'm talking, they look like they had been carved out of granite, like a Roman god or something. And they just got taken down by people who don't even know what sound their voices are going to make when they speak. (laughs) 1980s hockey team has nothing on this, okay? But you know, this is a reminder of us about what a team looks like, isn't it? Great teams happen when the sum total is greater than the individual parts, right? In fact, we even know that the opposite is true, don't we? That you can have a team like that dodgeball team that is filled with great components, built up with incredible players or incredible athletes, but unless the sum total is greater than the individual parts, the team fails. What we're going to see Paul talking about with the church at Philippi is that the church is to come together to be one of those great teams. You know, the truth is, is that we have some weird parts, right? I mean, when you look at the individual, look at our staff, okay? Have you seen one of our videos? I still don't even know what that was about, right? But but when you take what each person has and what each person is able to do and what each person is equipped to do and what each person has been experienced and the wisdom that they have and you bring all of the parts together to create the sum total, the sum total empowered by the Spirit of God brought together by the gospel of Christ is able to do what people can't do, able to be a part of something that is spectacular and supernatural. And brothers and sisters, I think that is a grand vision. I think that is a grand vision for each of us to come in for the sake of the kingdom and for the sake of our own joy and the joy of the others in the congregation to bring what we have to the table and to join together in all of our diversity and all of our disorders and all of our weirdness to create something in which the sum total is greater than the individual parts. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me now to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter two. When you get to Philippians chapter two, if you would stand with me as we read God's word together. Philippians chapter two, we're gonna read the first four verses together. It says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you, also, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. There's a wonderful picture of the Trinity here that would be easy for us to miss. In fact, it's a formula that Paul opens up with as he kind of tries to make this emotional plea with us to be unified with one another. He opens up with with what is actually a formula. We see almost this exact same phraseology used back in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. He talks about the, the, 
uh, encouragement of the Son. And then he says the love, uh, the comfort from love. But that love, if we look at 2 Corinthians 13, we see almost the same words. And he attributes that there. And he contributes love like this in other places to God the Father. All right, so you have the encouragement of the Son. You have the love of the Father. And then what does he say? He says the participation or translated more literally. He says the fellowship of the Spirit. So he has in his mind this Trinitarian action that has taken place to bring every member of the church at Philippi to this point, to bring every person together. And he says, what does this create? This creates affection. This creates compassion, passion and compassion. That, that this work of the Godhead in your life to bring you to this moment has been that you might have passion for the things of God, passion for the people of God, passion for the kingdom of God, and that you might be filled with a compassion that brings you together and allows you to live with one another with an understanding. See, we are saved through the relationship that the Godhead has among its persons. Did you realize that? That your salvation is the result of a Trinitarian transaction between the God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. God the Father in his great love has willed that you might be saved. He has come up with a plan of providence and redemption. God the Son has fulfilled that plan. God the Son has come and he has accomplished our salvation. The very way that the Father has laid it out according to his own love. And God the Son having accomplished it, now it is, he applies it through God the Spirit to you. God the Spirit draws you to the Father. God the Spirit convicts you of your sin. God the Spirit calls you out of your wickedness and unto repentance. God the Spirit wakens up a dead and trespassing heart. God the Spirit gives you a new nature and then begins to sanctify you in the nature of Christ himself so that you begin to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel as Paul has said. So it takes each member of the Trinity, each member of the Godhead coming together and working in unity and unison with one another that you might be made right with God, but not just right with God, that you may be made right with one another, that you might be brought together. And so this is what Paul has in mind. Remember, this is an application of what we talked about last week. Last week, Paul is saying, live your life in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. And when we come to chapter two, verse one, he takes an aside to take living worthy of the gospel and applying it to the congregation, applying it to their life together in relationships with one another. And so what he wants them to see is that it took the Father and the Son and the Spirit working harmoniously together to bring them unto God and to bring them into relationship with one another. And now, just as God in his unity has brought them together, now their unity is to display something of the character of God. That the church is to reflect the unity of God through the unity of the body. The Spirit brings us into fellowship with God and the very same Spirit indwelling all believers brings us into fellowship with one another. You see, our relationships with one another are the result of what God has done. And now our relationships and unity with one another are to resemble who God is. See, the issue that the world has with the church is that we don't look like God. We don't look like Christ. That Churches are more famous for their fights over carpet than they are for their unity and mission. 
And the world looks in from the outside and they can't see a unified Godhead. They can't see something of the wonder and splendor and power and transcendence of who God is by looking in at us with all of our differences and all of our histories and all of our baggage and seeing a unified church. See, our unity overcoming all differences is to paint the picture of an eternal bond that has been there since before the foundations of the earth. And so Paul talks about this. And he uses one time, uh, he uses one word twice, right? He uses mind. He says to be of one mind, to all have the same mind. Now, it's important for us to understand what he means by there, by that. What Paul is not talking, I think a lot of the time when we think about unity, we think about uniformity, right? That, That we all have to have the same opinion. We all have to think that we should do the same thing. That we, ought to, we all have to see the world through the same eyes. We all have to have the same perspective on every hot button issue. We have to have the same convictions on every tertiary doctrine. And if we don't have 100% agreement in thought and in practice in all things, then we are not unified. But Paul is not here talking about uniformity. He is talking about unity. In fact, he is talking about a unity that is much more beautiful and powerful than uniformity. When he talks about being of one mind, what he's talking about is having a single-minded, tunnel-visioned focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's talking about what, that, that we all concentrate superior, with superiority upon the, fir, the primary thing, which is Christ himself. Christ crucified, Christ raised, Christ preached, Christ advanced, sinners saved. That we are to have a uniform passion for the same mission and the same purpose and the same causes. And within that, within that, there is allowance for disagreement. In that, some of us are going to have differences of opinion. Some of us are going to think that the church should do this and some of us are going to think that the church should do that. But we can come together with a single-minded passion for the gospel and bring all of those convictions, all of those differences together and say, you know what? I can set down my opinion. I can set down my thoughts on this because we are going to bind together for the gospel of Jesus Christ to the worship and advancement of his holy name. But it is to live in submission to a greater call and a greater cause and a greater mission to prioritize what is most important over those things in which faithful Christians that love the Bible can disagree. So where single-mindedness for the gospel exists, what we find is that unity will exist. You find a church that is unified and you will find a church that is single-minded in its focus and single-minded in its mission. So the question becomes, how can this actually happen, right? How how can this take place? How is it that we can have this single-minded focus, this, this concentration that allows us, even in disagreement, even with a difference of opinion, to come together in joy and in unity and to advance forward rather than being held back by our differences? I think the first starting place for us as we pursue unity is that you have to see yourself honestly. You have to see yourself honestly. And to see yourself honestly, you have to understand your role. You have to understand your role. There's something interesting about the way 
that Paul applies this, right? About the way he calls us to unity. Think about the things that he's calling us to do. He's calling us to not have selfish ambition. He's calling for us to not live in vain conceit. He's calling us to live instead in an attitude of humility. He's calling us to value others ahead of ourselves and to consider others more significant than ourselves. He's calling for us to place the interests of others ahead of our own interests. And he's writing this collectively to the church as a whole. But the interesting part about that to me is, is though he is writing these things to the church as a whole, these are all things that can only be applied to your life individually right? You have to do that. I can't make you count others more significant than yourself. You can't make me. I can't make you put the interests of others ahead of your own interests. Only you can do that. I don't know what's in your heart in terms of selfish ambition. I don't know whether you're filled with vain conceit or humility before Christ. I don't know those things for you, but you bear the weight individually for our unity collectively. You see that? It's what you decide for your own life. It's what you decide in your own devotion to Christ. It's what you decide as you pursue Christ and run after Christ and seek to live in community with your brothers and sisters. It's how you apply that in your life that will determine the whole unity of the the body. What all of us know is that one bad apple, one person with a bee in their bonnet can disrupt the unity of a whole body. And yet... Yet we underestimate. We come into a church and we look around, we see a lot of people here, right? And we think, you know, my part's really not that big of a deal. We we tell ourselves this, don't we? It's it's not that big a deal that I'm not serving. It's it's not that big a deal that I'm not contributing. It's not it's not that big a deal that that I'm kind of gossiping a little bit. Like, Like it's not that big of a deal. He said what Paul would say is that it's a big deal because every person bears the responsibility of unity upon themselves. See, I want you to think about the gospel. In the gospel, you know what Jesus did not say? Jesus did not say they should. Here's what I mean by that. Jesus did not say they should be more faithful. They should make themselves better. They should make themselves right with God. They should work harder and show that they are serious about this. Jesus didn't say that. You know what Jesus said? Jesus said, I will. I will go to them because they can't come to me. I will justify them because they can't justify themselves. I will supply them with a righteousness that is foreign to them. I will do it because they can't do it. What if we applied that attitude in the life of the church? What if rather than saying they should be more friendly, they should be more loving, they should be more evangelistic, they should be more hospitable, they should serve better, they should should be more faithful in attendance. What if instead I, I said, I will love better. I will serve faithfully. I will evangelize more faithfully. I will step up to the plate. I will give generously. I will be hospitable and welcome guests and make them my friends. I will do that. Brothers and sisters, if all of us took an I will rather than a they should attitude, our church would be all of those things. Our church would be in bond with one another because all of us are more aware of various issues than others and all of us are better at other things than than our brothers and sisters. And if we brought what we have to the table, all of those things can be overcome. 
It's easy if you've been here for a long time to kind of rest and say, man, there are a lot of new people. Let me let them take responsibility for that. Let me let them welcome all the new folks because I can't tell them apart anyway. And it's easy for those of you who have only been here a short time to say, I'm still new here. I'm still trying to fit in. But instead, brothers and sisters, if we didn't look for excuses and said, I will do it, it would transform the culture of our church. We would see more people come to faith in Christ we would see more people loved and served well. So if, if we are to see ourselves honestly, we must understand the role that we play in the unity of the church. Not only must we understand our role though, but if we're going to see ourselves honestly, we must guard our motives. You must guard your motives. This is what he's getting at when he talks about selfish ambition. Selfish ambition. You know, it's completely possible, and all of you already know this, to do all of the right things with all of the wrong motives, isn't it? It's completely possible. Like there's a way to camouflage serving yourself as though you are serving Christ himself and his church. There is a way to act as though you are living sacrificially when truly your sacrifice is self-serving and meant to bolster your own self-importance. See, it's giving so that other people will think highly of you. It's serving so that people will believe that you do your part. It's quoting the scripture so people will think that you're founded upon the word. It's, it's going on a mission trip so people think that you're next level. It's doing all of the right things, but with all of the wrong motive and all of the wrong heart. And selfish ambition is to secretly compete with Jesus for the adoration and the worship that Christ alone is worthy of. Is to always have in the back of your mind, I hope somebody's watching. I hope they think better of me now. I hope they see how serious I am. Rather than saying, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I desire you. Jesus, I am surrendered and devoted to you. Jesus, you get it all. See, I think there's some questions that we need to ask ourselves this morning. Does it bother you that you don't have more influence even if people are growing in Christ? Do you live more faithfully when other people are watching than when you're by yourself? Are you more likely to serve thinking that you desire Christ to be glorified or that you desire your, your own self to be highly thought of? Do you think more of your performance in the eyes of others rather than your faithfulness offered to Christ? Brothers and sisters, that might reveal a faulty motive in your life. It may very well reveal that in your heart is a selfish ambition to advance your own name. But brothers and sisters, let us build a Christ-honoring, Christ-seeking, Christ-centered kingdom rather than a no, new modern-day Tower of Babel that puts on display our own wisdom and our own acumen. If you're gonna see yourself honestly, you must watch your attitude. You must watch your attitude. He talks about conceit, right? The end of verse three, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. And then he gives us a contrasting, a contrasting attitude, right? But in humility, but in humility. He gives us these contrasting attitudes, one that divides and one that unifies. 
one that splits us apart and one that brings us together. And the attitude that divides is the attitude of conceit and the attitude that unifies is the attitude of humility, humility. The word conceit there, your, your Bible may even add an, a second word and it's to help you understand the full picture of what he says. Your, your Bible may say vain conceit, right? Because the word conceit there paints a picture. It, it, it's, it means literally empty glory, empty glory. That is, it's to give yourself a crown. It's to put a crown on your head and to be self-anointed, self-coronated as though you are somebody big, Right? The picture is Michael Scott buying himself the world's greatest boss mug, right? It's, it's Lori Laughlin buying her kids way into USC because they didn't have the grades or ability to get in on their own. It's, it's, given, it's, it's writing an award on your resume that you really didn't win just so that you sound better in the eyes of others. It's being self-anointed. It's, it's believing that you ought to have more influence than you have, even though you haven't earned it. It's believing that your, your opinions ought to be heeded, even when many people believe they are not the most wise or even are unwise. It's having to always have your voice heard. It's having to always have your way. And if you don't have your way, you can't be uh, unified with others. That is, it is to be filled with vanity as though your importance is at the primary. And he contrasts that instead with humility. He says the opposite of that is to look like Jesus. The opposite of that is to follow the example of a savior who left the dignity of a throne in heaven and came to lay in the shame of hay for the good of the world. The opposite of living in vanity, the opposite of having to have your way, the opposite of giving yourself empty glory is to follow the one who went to the cross on your behalf and took up that cross in humility. You see, humility in Paul's day was very similar to humility in our day. It was viewed as being something that was not desirable. It was viewed by, as being something that was for the weak. Humility was a word that you would use to describe a slave and the position that a slave has. But brothers and sisters, that's what we are. We are slaves, but we are slaves to a greater master. And the job of servant in the kingdom of God is greater than the position of king here on earth. And all of us who believe that the first will be last and the last will be first can take up humility joyfully for the unity of the body. See, not only should we, do you have to see yourself honestly, Paul says though, but you have to see others graciously. You have to see others graciously. He says at the end of verse three to count others more significant than yourself. He's making a value statement here. In other words, he's saying when, when you evaluate the value of someone that you meet, you should immediately say this person's priorities, this person's needs are going to be ahead of my own. I'm going to value them ahead of myself. Now, you might hear that in the self-esteem planet that we live on now and think, well, that, you know, that seems weird. I'm not, I'm not supposed to love myself and care for myself and all of those things. But th that's assumed. What he's talking about here is practical value, not actual value. 
Of, of course, Christ came and he gave his own life for you just as he did your brother or your sister, just as he did your neighbor on the same street that you live in. So the actual value is the same, but the way that you are to live, the way you are to practically apply this into your life is that they are more significant than you are. Think about this. Jesus, Jesus came and how did he live? He lived as though you were of more value than he is. Did he not? Jesus came and he said, John, I'm gonna, I'm gonna die so that you can live. Russell, I'm gonna die so that you can live. Andrew, I'm gonna put my life and suffer so that you don't have to suffer. Daniel, I'm gonna allow you to be united with the Father. And so I'm gonna leave that, go to the cross on your behalf. In other words, I'm going to live as though your life is more valuable than my life. But brothers and sisters, if we took all of the history of the church and we added every life together, and we looked forward and added all of the future of the church and added every life together, we would not come with a composite that even comes to the first inch of the value of Christ. And yet Christ offered his life anyway. Brothers and sisters, is that not grace? Is that not grace? Grace is measuring generously. Grace is applying mercifully. Grace is coming and offering yourself even though you, they aren't worthy. That's why grace changes how you view others. Grace measures generously, meaning that whenever we meet someone and whenever we evaluate them, we don't do like we typically do. We are cynical people, are we not? And we meet someone and how do we evaluate them? We see they're good, they're bad, and we see they're bad much more clearly. And we talk about it much more honestly. And we only talk about the good when we realize we've said so much bad, we start feeling guilty, need to throw some good in there. So do the opposite though. It's to count them as being more significant than you. And to begin talking about them in a way that builds them up and elevates them and holds them up in a way that is even sacrificial to yourself. See, grace is the opposite of cynical. Grace is charitable. Grace is inclining your heart to love someone when it is more natural to critique them. Grace makes it impossible to, go to gossip and quick to give the benefit of the doubt. Grace is choosing to think highly whenever possible. Grace crushes in us the cynic that is always tearing down the people that we meet. But grace doesn't just measure generously. Grace applies mercifully. It's not just what grace thinks, it's what grace does. Grace always chooses to treat others in a way that reflects how Christ has treated you. You know what the hardest part of being in the church is? The people, right? Like that's why people are in love with the idea of going to church in their recliner. Like, like church minus the people is easy. I'm always unified with me most of the time. I always like what I think and what I have to say. But people are painful. People offend me. People cause me to fall into dismay. People cause me to become angry. People wound me unnecessarily. People, people cause me to re realize my sinfulness in a way that is painful for me to realize. People confront me and people challenge me. But, but brothers and sisters, without people, there is no church. And Christ came for the church. Christ came for the church. 
You see, our culture searched for an easy button and never found one. And since we couldn't find an easy button, we found an eject button. And so whenever we get into relationships that begin to hurt us a little bit, whenever we get into relationships that get past the introductions, whenever we get to a, a friendship and the friendship gets hard, whenever we get into the marriage and the marriage isn't romance anymore, whenever we get into the church and the church gets, gets, gets uncovered for the sinners that are really there, what we do in looking for an easy button is we eject ourselves out of the situation and thus we don't know the depth and the richness of, the, of going deep with people in the midst of their hardship and in the midst of their pain and in the midst of the frustration and we miss the glory of the gospel that is there. Oh, the gospel overcomes all of those things, does it not? Did it not wake up your dead heart? Did it not open up your blind eyes? Did it not unstop your deaf ears to know a God that you couldn't know otherwise? And the more you've suffered in your life, the more you've realized that God's promises are rock solid. Oh, is it not the same in our relationships with one another? Is it not the same in our relationships with one another? Most of us don't know the church in the way that the New Testament describes it because we've never given it the chance. You have to be hurt by people to know the gospel in the church. You have to have been forgiven by people to know the gospel in the church. You have to have been frustrated by people and have frustrated others and yet still at the end of the day say, in spite of all of that, I am in with you and you are in with me. Let's press forward with a single-mindedness for the gospel. Oh, brothers and sisters, don't eject. Don't eject. Double down. Double down. Know and be known. Be love and be loved. Finally, we see that we live for the joy of others. That if we're to have a single-mindedness, if we're to be unified with one another, that you must live for the joy of others sacrificially. That's been the ultimate call in Paul's mind. He's been building up to this moment so that it can crescendo right here, that, that it's right thinking, it's right measuring, it's right viewing, but all of those things build up and lead to right living, right living, the actions in your life, the things that you do, the things that you say, the ways that you treat people. Think about how he frames this up. He wants them to take each, each other's joy very seriously. He's making that clear. But how does he start us off? He starts us off. He says, complete my joy. Complete my joy. Now, if someone in our church walked up to you and said, hey, I'm Cody, how are you doing? I'd like you to complete my joy. Like, how would you receive that? This, this seems weird, doesn't it? Like, you almost just want to say, bro, it ain't about you, right? Like, isn't that kind of what you want to see, say? Except Paul's writing these words from prison. Paul had poured out his life for their joy. There's something mutual happening here. What Paul is saying is that I have responsibility for your joy and you have responsibility for my joy. That my joy is found in your well-being. 
My joy is found in that you are aspiring to Christ. My joy is found in that you are unified to each other and that the gospel is permeating the culture and overcoming all the barriers. And the world is looking in and is amazed at the unity of the church. My joy is found in that. So, so if you want my joy to be complete, if you want my joy to be rock solid, what I need for you to do, what I'm calling for you to do, what I'm demanding that you do is to live for one another's joy, to put your interests down and pick up the interests of your brother, to live for the interests of others. That's a radical concept in 21st century America. Your marriage isn't just about you, man. Your parenting isn't about you. Your job isn't about you and your church isn't about you. It's about something bigger. It's about something more wonderful, about something more beautiful. You see, we have bought in to all of the millions of dollars of advertising dollars that have been spent to convince us that we can buy our way to happiness, that we can indulge our way to happiness, that if I can just have the newest this, if I can just have a wife that's like this, if I can just have a husband that will do this, if I can just have kids that are shaped like this, if I can just have a job that's something like this, if I can just go to a church that feels like this, then, then I will be happy. But what he is saying here, brothers and sisters, is what Jesus has taught it, that it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. That generosity brings a, love, a joy in your life that a purchase just can't bring. That genuinely helping somebody will bring joy into your life in a way that you can never vacation your way to. That living for the joy of others creates in your very own life a fountain of joy that you can have that will not run dry and will not be extinguished, but instead will quench you on the driest day. Marriage is not about you being served. Marriage is about you serving one another in humility and in serving one another, you create a cycle and fountain of joy for each other. Parenting, same situation. This is what we're cultivating in the hearts of our children. And brothers and sisters, this is the church. That what Paul is calling for us to do is to take your joy so seriously that you live for the joy of others. Because that's what love is. That's what love is. Love isn't, hey, please give me everything that I want. Love is, is that I'm happy when you're happy. I find joy in your joy. And even if your joy costs me, even if your joy is difficult, even if your joy requires the expenditure of my own energy, even if your joy requires the sacrificing of my own comfort and the abandonment of my own preferences, I will lay down my own interests in your interest because you are my primary interest. And if you are happy, I will be happy. And if you have joy, I will have joy. Brothers and sisters, that is love. And that is the dominant attitude of the New Testament church. See, a joy, a church founded upon joy and not preferences. Love and not music style. Servanthood and not consumerism. It's a much more grand view, vision for the church, isn't it? It's a much grander picture, a much more powerful and beautiful picture of what the gospel can do. 
And this is the recipe for unity. Unity is always the result of sacrifice preferences for a higher priority. Unity is making decisions based upon maximum benefit over personal benefit. Unity is prioritizing what's most beneficial to the whole over what's most comfortable for me. This is why you serve in the nursery. This is why you prepare to teach every week. This is why you make yourself uncomfortable by going and making a friend out of a visitor. You do all of those things so that you can pursue the joy of one another and lay down your own life and your own comfort so that they might be built up in the gospel. Do you know not everything that we do in our church that I agree with? It's not that I don't agree with, it's not, it's not my favorite. You know what I mean? Do you know that? I'm gonna be strange for you to hear. We do things that if it were just Cody Hale here, I would do them differently. That, that I, if it was just about what I enjoy, about what I like, I would do things my way. But you know what, I love you. And I don't think it's best for the whole. And there are things that minister to you that minister to me differently. And there are, there are ways that you connect with God and I connect with God differently. But brothers and sisters, we're in this together. And, and, and there are many of you, like if you were drawing up our music, it would look different. It would look different to you. And you, you would worship in a different way. But, but you aren't causing division. You're, you're in unity because, because you understand that for the whole, for the whole, we can praise the Lord. And so you lay down your own preferences and you lay down your own comfort for the unity of the body because we are pursuing the baptistry stirring every week. We are pursuing a nursery filled with children to be raised in the admonition of the Lord. We are pursuing the advancement of the gospel to peoples of all tribes and all tongues and all nations. We are pursuing the joy of Calhoun County County, and we are pursuing the joy of every marriage and of every family and brothers and sisters that is bigger than a guitar and that is bigger than my preferences so so we can lay those things down because we have a single-minded focus on the gospel praise God for a grander vision for the church than consumeristic 21st century American Christianity oh Iron City let's pursue this vision together let's come together around the gospel and lay down what's comfortable for what's best let's pray together Hi, I'm Cody Hill. I'm the lead pastor here at Iron City. Thank you so much for connecting with us online. I hope in the days ahead that we'll have an opportunity to connect with you in person. On our website, ironcity.org, you'll see a number of different opportunities that you have to connect with our church and opportunities that we're seeking to engage our community and minister to our church family. I'd like to especially invite you to come and be a part of one of our connection groups that meet at nine o'clock immediately preceding our Sunday morning worship service. You'll find that we're not a perfect church, but we are a passionate church. We take following Jesus very seriously, but we try not to take ourselves too seriously. So I hope you'll come this Sunday at 1015 and worship with us and let us get to know you a little bit better.